My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I am speaking with Emily Riley. Emily is a provisional licensed professional counselor in New Orleans, Louisiana. She specializes in trauma and PTSD and has worked primarily with veterans and first responders. Emily got her master's in counseling from TCU and her master's in clinical psychology from UCF. It was at UCF where she trained under one of the country's leading experts in PTSD treatment, Dr. Deborah Bidel. Emily was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, and attended the Ohio State University for psychology and neuroscience. Go Buckeyes. After graduation, she moved to Fort Hood, Texas for a job working on PTSD research studies with active duty soldiers. This fueled her, her desire to provide comprehensive research, um, comprehensive research-informed PTSD treatment and put her on the path toward becoming a mental health counselor. So Emily, I wanna thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and, and talk with me. We met uh, quite a few years ago, not long after the, the Pulse massacre in Orlando. And I believe that was the catalyst to UCF really inviting first responders into the UCF Restores program. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Before that, we'd really focused more on um, veterans or even active duty military. And can you tell me a little bit about the research that has been done in that particular modality? Mm -hmm. With um, first responders specifically or PTSD? I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the UCF Restores program, how uh, it, that program was developed, the research that went into developing that modality, the immersion therapy. It, it was initially developed for combat vets, I would imagine, and then that then was kind of translated over into the first responder world with firefighters, EMTs, and uh, law enforcement. Right. It really came from a place of um, theoretical rationale that we've known about for decades. We've known that this, what we call exposure therapy or being around something that you're anxious about can lead to decreases in anxiety. I mean, if you fall off a horse, they tell you to get back on. Like that's always the saying. Um, so Dr. Vidal developed what she calls trauma management therapy, which includes this huge exposure piece for PTSD. Um, once again, starting with 
military, as you mentioned, and moving over to first responders. And one of the really cool pieces of it is that she has this awesome virtual reality system and includes sights, sounds, and um, so that we can actually build up a scene. I'm sorry. It, oh, sorry. It, it, it froze there for a second. It it involves sights, sounds, and smells. Yes. So that we can actually essentially make the treatment a little bit more effective by getting you getting someone closer to um, envisioning the scene that caused the PTSD in the first place, you could say. I, I believe Dr. Beidel was interested in expanding this to first responders before Pulse, um, but after the Pulse massacre, she really wanted to reach out to the community and see what she could do. And so I was lucky enough to be part of that and be one of the students at the time who was able to meet with first responders and see how effective this is with first responders, which we found to be just as effective as with military. Um, and now they're, I believe they're looking at what they can do to make it even more effective for folks. I've discussed the exposure therapy with several other mental health professionals. And mm -hmm. it, it seems to have like uh, some, some pretty mixed reviews. Some, mm -hmm. uh, you know, look at the research, they see the effectiveness, but then it's also, some would say, re-traumatizing the, the patient. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is your experience with that? Um, had, I mean, had you had many of your clients just kind of up and leave and not come back to the treatment? I don't find it to be re-traumatizing for people. I've never had someone get up and leave and not come back. I mean, I've had people ask for breaks here and there because it can be pretty intense. Um, but in general, people with PTSD are thinking about what happened to them all the time when they don't want to be. The thoughts are there, the memories are there, the nightmares are there. So us asking you to do it in a controlled setting in a specific way to lower your anxiety does not re-traumatize people because they're already thinking about it. It's already such a huge part of their lives. We've also seen some research to kind of back up the fact that exposure therapy is not harmful. People do not drop out of it more often than any other therapy. They don't report any more adverse effects or problems than they do with any other therapy. Um, and I don't know if you've ever talked about EMDR on the podcast. That is very popular right now for trauma treatment. Well, EMDR has a huge exposure component and folks aren't necessarily worked up about that the same way they are exposure. So I guess you could say that's one of my pet peeves, the whole re-traumatizing piece, because I just don't find it to be true in, in any sense. Well, I, I thought you would be a good person to approach that subject. So thank you for talking about it. it. Yeah. I met you as, as one of your patients. And that was a very positive experience for me. It helped a great deal. Unfortunately, you know, I continued my career in the fire service and continued to be exposed to traumatic events and mm -hmm. some of them pretty pretty bad and uh, i ended up going back through the program i believe this is 
after you had moved to Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I had went back through the, uh, what is it called the intensive outpatient program? Mm -hmm. Did that. Yeah. It seems like from what I've found, it's, it's not like a, a quick trip to being healed. It's a journey of making tweaks, learning different skills, how to, how to cope and um, how to reframe different, uh, well, I mean, like if you talk about uh, cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, you know, reframing thoughts that are really just cognitive distortions. Mm -hmm. And I, I would imagine that's probably something that you use in combination with quite a bit of stuff. And I, I was just wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience with, with first responders and, and combat vets and, and um, some of the therapies that you've found most effective. Yeah. Um... My experience really started before I was even able to do therapy. Um, straight out of college, I moved to Fort Hood, Texas to work on some pretty big research studies with soldiers there. Um, it was a pretty cool opportunity because there's one professor who got a grant to do a ton of different studies. So they took folks, like all the leading trauma treatment folks in the country pretty much were running studies through Fort Hood. Um, to figure out how to best deliver treatment to folks who are still active duty, because it's kind of a different thing than when you have veterans who are out. Active duty still has to go to work every day, and they have schools they go to, and they have deployments, and duty, and this and that, and the other thing. So while I was there, I really got to work on the Dr. Foa's prolonged exposure study. Um, Dr. Foa is another researcher who looks at exposure therapy and her brand, you could say, is called prolonged exposure. Um, and Dr. Patty Resick's cognitive processing therapy, which is kind of the other side of the coin of exposure. It's looking at trauma through some of those things you talked about, like reframing and asking yourself questions about what happened and things like that. So while I was there, I was really more on the administrative side of things, but I got to see how transformative this was for people. I would see people who came in and just seemed really flat, no emotions, never smiled. My wife wants a divorce. My life is a mess. I Sometimes people wouldn't even know if they wanted to live anymore. And going through this treatment restored so much hope and joy and emotion to people. And that's when I knew like, I, I need to get involved in this. This is really cool and I'd love to be a part of it. So then I went over to UCF and was able to do that for four years, which was really awesome. Um, Dr. Beidel taught me a whole lot about the, the most effective ways to deliver exposure therapy. And I do believe that her way is the best way, to be honest. Um, but I got to work with a lot of, 
a lot of veterans and quite a few first responders. And it was the same thing that I saw at Fort Hood, but I was there firsthand. You know, you see people slowly start to get better and it's like a weight comes off of them and they come in and you start to see the difference. And to me, that's one of the coolest things about working in mental health. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing in New Orleans? Yeah, um, so I came out here and got a job that is half in private practice and half working for the specialty courts of Jefferson Parish, which is um, the neighboring parish to New Orleans. So about half of my week is spent in the office working with individual clients. And the other half, I go to one of the court buildings and work with folks who are mandated to be there to work through substance use or drinking problems. And to me, that really crosses over with trauma work quite a bit because people who, the substance use and trauma just have this huge crossover, essentially. I mean, we've known for a long time that a lot of people who use substances in ways that are interfering with their lives are doing it because they're trying to cope with or mask or deal with trauma in some way or another. That's not always the case, but that is very often the case. And so one of the cool things about my job is that I get to go over two days a week and run these treatment groups. But then if anyone wants any individual therapy to work on trauma or stress or relationships or whatever, that's included in their program. So then I can bring them to the office one of the days that I'm there and have individual sessions that go along with the groups. So we can address trauma and substance use kind of all in one go. One of the things that I have talked about with other mental health professionals and, and just other guests is the ACEs study and um, you know how adverse childhood experiences tend to predispose people to PTSD and, and other things, maybe not necessarily PTSD, but if you go into a field like you go into combat or you go into law enforcement, uh, fire service, where you're going to be exposed to traumatic events, you're more likely to end up suffering from PTSD is kind of how I read that study. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the original finding was that kids who have gone through two or more ACEs or adverse childhood experiences are way more likely to have mental health problems as an adult, including PTSD, depression, anxiety, um, even things like bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder. Um, and they're also more likely to have a host of negative physical health things happening. I mean, um, certain cancers, and I'd have to brush up on the study, but I know there are a lot of physical health connections too. So it really is a major concern, I think, for public health and for all of us. Yeah, one of the things that I, I've, I've actually got quite a few resources on my website. Well, there's the autonomic ladder and polyvagal theory and all of that. And it kind of shows those, those uh, diagrams kind of show how our bodies respond to those stress hormones and, and then the, the chemicals that are released 
by the parasympathetic nervous system. And then when you're in that constant state of stress and your cortisol levels are pretty high, that tends to lead to more cardiovascular issues, high blood pressure, um, all that stuff that you tend to see in law enforcement, corrections, uh, fire rescue, you know, there's all these health issues. And a lot of times, you know, the organizations point like, well, you're not exercising or you got an unhealthy diet, blah, blah, blah. But there, it's compounded by the trauma. Yes, absolutely. It all goes together. And that's one of the reasons why um, I like to address things like diet and exercise and sleep too when I can, when people are willing to talk about that because it's so connected. I mean, we know that diets that lead to a lot of inflammation in your body, um, well, there are diets that can lead to a lot of inflammation in your body. And we know that inflammation is connected to depression PTSD, probably some other things because I haven't read this research in a couple of years. I don't know that we've made these official like scientific connections yet, but I think logic would say if you can decrease inflammation in your body through diet, sleep, exercise, what have you, then you might be able to improve mental health from that aspect too. So for me, it all goes together. And to be a responsible, ethical therapist, I need to at least talk to my clients about all of that stuff and see what they're willing to address because leaving a part of it out isn't taking care of the whole person to me. I'd like to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. Um, so well, we'll just go back to the beginning. Were you born in Columbus? I was born in a suburb of Columbus. Yeah, so about 20 minutes away from the city itself. So you grew up in Ohio and what what did your parents do for a living? And when I was little, both of my parents taught and then my dad quit teaching and he kind of bounced around. He did mostly house painting and landscaping for a while. Um, my mom stuck with teaching, did her whole 35 years as a middle school music teacher. Um, and then my parents got divorced when I was about 10. And so it was my mom and my older sister and I for most of my childhood. That's most of what I remember was the three of us. How many siblings do you have? I have one older biological sister. Um, and then my mom got remarried when I was 20. And so I have um, a stepsister who's my age and then two older stepbrothers. So now we're a big old family. But growing up, it was just my sister and my mom and I. What inspired you to go into mental health? I think it's, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I first went to college. I grew up in a family that just kind of said, when you're done with high school, I mean, my mom always wanted me to do what I loved, but it just was kind of assumed that I'd go to college because that's what we did in our family. We just went to college. So I went to college, took all the general courses, um, and I found myself really fascinated with the brain and how the brain works. Um, and then to be 
extremely honest, I went through a sexual assault my freshman year of college. And so going to therapy was extremely, was life-changing for me. And one of the pieces that helped me the most was learning how the brain responds to stressful events, was understanding things like the freeze reaction and stress responses in the brain and trauma symptoms and all of that was a huge part of my recovery. Um, and so once I experienced that, that and the general interest in psychology and neuroscience made me think, well, I wanna work with the brain somehow. Um, I worked in a couple neuroscience labs as a lab assistant and it was kind it was pretty cool. It was really cool research, but I got really tired of just playing with rats. <laughs> I wanted something that would like interact with me a little bit and talk. And I was going through stand-up comedy and podcasts and needed some sort of human interaction. So um, I thought I wanted to go to grad school for clinical psychology but I needed a little bit more time to be sure. So once I graduated, that's when I came across the job at Fort Hood and thought, well, I think this is the field I wanna go into. This is pretty cool. Um, let me just go down there and see how it works out. Um, so it was kind of this process of like general ideas and then narrowing down my focus over time until I could figure out like where my, my niche really is. You mentioned the, the sexual trauma and, and that's, you know, I have a 15 year old daughter and I just had this talk with her um, about, well, the statistics of one in four uh, young women, you know, by the age of 18 will be the victim of sexual assault, sexual trauma and one in six men or young men or male children will be the victims of sexual assault or trauma. And then as you get into the, you know, um, late teens, early twenties, I would imagine that the, the prevalence is a little more like in the college atmosphere. I, I'm not sure of the statistics, but what advice would you give to, to young women that, well, for one, this, this is one question that I would have for you, because I know that young women are more likely to tell one of their friends, but it go no further. Mm -hmm. And just in my head, I, I feel like that is extremely unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for young women or, or people that are aware, maybe they have some friends that, or a friend that has been the victim of sexual assault, sexual trauma? That's a big question. And I think I have a lot of things to say about it. Um, I was one of those, I wasn't going to come forward. I really felt like this was pretty much my fault. So why am I gonna tell anyone about it? Like I'm very embarrassed and ashamed. And so let's just like try to move on with my life. But fortunately I had some really good friends in college who said, you have got to at least go to the health center and go to a mental health. Like you have to do those things. You don't have to tell anyone else. 
but go see a therapist and go get checked out physically. So I did those two things. And even after that first session with a the therapist, I was like, I, I cannot keep this a secret from my family. My mom and sister and I were very close growing up. So I was like, this, this has to come out. So it was through a process of encouragement that I was able to tell people and start to kind of reclaim myself and realize that it wasn't actually my fault at all. Um, and I had nothing to be ashamed of because I didn't do this to myself. So I think if you have a friend who tells you, encourage them to talk to someone about it. If they feel like they can't tell a certain family member or they're not ready to go to the police or something like that, they might have a really good reason. So don't push, but encourage them to talk to someone because that's how the moving on starts. I do think it's important not to push too hard because sometimes people have really good reasons for not sharing things with whoever. So definitely don't push, but just, I would say, be there and be supportive and encourage someone to, to just talk to someone safe. I think too, for women generally in this culture, there's this idea of kind of going with the flow or being assertive isn't emphasized for women in our culture, right? Like maybe for some groups it is, you know, it certainly is going to differ a little bit throughout the country, but in general, being assertive as a female is not something that is emphasized or necessarily valued in all the right contexts. So you grow up not really knowing how to do that or when to do that. And I think that's something that plays into this happening and people staying silent about it because it's hard when your whole life you haven't really been all that assertive to suddenly like jump up and be super assertive about this crazy thing that's happening you know like I've been told my whole life not to do this but now all of a sudden I'm supposed to do it that doesn't really fit and make sense for a lot of people so I think that's not to say that it's ever someone's fault if they are the victim. I don't mean that at all, but I mean, I think that if you are out and about and you want to protect yourself, being assertive about what you want and what you do not want is one thing that can help you. And, and then if you kind of talk to the subject of, well, after, after a sexual assault, the roller coaster of emotions and really the feeling of isolation, like, you know, maybe shame, uh, taking all the responsibility for what happened. And that is, from what I understand, a fairly normal response to that mm -hmm. kind of trauma. Yeah. And I think if anybody is listening to this that has experienced that and they're feeling like they're alone or they're broken or something like that, it's not that they're broken, their, their body, their physiology is responding in the exact way that it's designed. Right. And I mean, we used to hear all about fight or flight and those were the only two things that you thought we thought that anyone ever did when they encountered something traumatic or stressful. 
but that's not true. There's also the freeze response. And in the past couple of decades, we started to learn a whole lot more about it and talk about it more, but it certainly still isn't a part of how people conceptualize trauma and severe stress. And so I think that ignoring that piece, at least for me, led to some of that self-blame too, because it was like, well, if it was really that bad, I would have done something like I should have left or I should have done more or I should have done whatever it was. But freezing is very normal for a lot of people. And you will never know how you'll respond to a situation until you're in it. One thing was recently, uh, or a piece of information was recently relayed to me uh, about this specific topic, sexual trauma, um, whether it be rape or just assault. And in the context, it was the context was military sexual trauma Mm -hmm. and that can be anywhere from you know physical assault without like actual penetration or something like that but Mm -hmm. you know it if it feels like sexual assault it's sexual assault and then you have people that are afraid to come forward because they feel like maybe nobody will believe them. But mm-hmm. when you look at the statistics, it's less than 1% of people that come forward as victims of sexual trauma are making up anything. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when, when you have a patient that comes to you that is the victim of sexual assault, sexual trauma. What are some of the first things that you like to address with them to maybe put them at ease with, you know, maybe to build rapport uh, or build that trust? Yeah, good question. Um, in, In general, I think giving my clients as much control over the sessions as possible is generally really helpful. Um, And just respecting them as like their own human being who has expertise about themselves and sometimes knows what's best for them and sometimes doesn't know, but has ideas. Um, I think those are pieces that are missing among a lot of mental health professionals, Um, not to get too far off topic, but So when someone comes into my office, I like to ask them questions about, is the lighting okay? Is it comfortable in here? Do you need anything? Um, Is it okay if I ask you these general questions that I like to go through to get to know you, or would you like to focus on something else for our first session? Um, Just things like that that can put my client back into the driver's seat I find to be really helpful in forming that relationship. And I think when someone comes in with trauma, any sort of trauma, that is really important because a key piece of trauma was a sense of helplessness. You know, that's very common in in sexual trauma, but it's common in combat first responders, you know, pretty much anyone I've ever seen with trauma had this core component of feeling helpless at a certain point in time. And so the last thing that I want to do when you come into my office is to make you feel like you don't have control or like 
I am telling you what to do in any particular situation. That's interesting that you that you bring that up, that that feeling that you've lost control or that whatever situation that has you traumatized, that is, that's at the core of it, that that feeling of like I had zero control over this. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that I could do. But on top of that, it's the shame of I should have done something. Mm-hmm. I should have been able to respond in this way. I should have, could have, would have, all those things. And man, that's part of that cognitive distortion mm-hmm. piece that. And since I've referenced it a couple of times, can you maybe explain some of the the components or dynamics of cognitive distortion? Sure. So we think of cognitive distortions as like problems in thinking or unrealistic thinking, I like to call it. Um, Essentially, they're just ways of distorting or looking at your environment or things that happened or whatever it is um, that aren't accurate and aren't helpful. So when a combat medic says to me, I should have saved him, that can be a cognitive distortion because, well, why should you have saved them? You know, they had this wound that no one could recover from. I mean, there's nothing you could have done. So why should you have saved them? So finding those little pieces, I think, and talking about them are a key part of trauma recovery and of any mental health, really. I mean, you see this with pretty much anything people come in for, depression, anxiety, whatever it is. Um, People will think things like, I can't handle this, or the world should be a certain way, or this other person in my life should be acting a certain way. Um, A lot of the absolute thinking always or never and a lot of the shoulds are cognitive distortions and so how do you address those cognitive distortions with your clients by asking lots of questions about them you could tell someone all day long that it wasn't their fault or that there was no way they could have done the thing they think they should have done or whatever it is but it doesn't usually hit home for people until they can have that like magic or, or light up moment where it clicks for them. And the best way I know how to do that is by just asking a lot of questions about whatever it is. So for the example of a combat medic saying they should have saved somebody, well, what was going on at the time and what else were you doing and who else was injured that you were hurting and who else was around you and just gaining a clearer picture generally helps people see that like okay maybe that idea isn't realistic in in that context i i've got a question for you because like i've experienced this myself where mm-hmm. i was talking about some some really tough stuff mm-hmm. and I really didn't want to think about the details surrounding those incidents mm-hmm. and the questions were being asked 
and asked. And I didn't understand where they were going because in my head, I was being asked those questions to verify that I'm telling the truth. Mm. Like that cognitive distortion right there is like, I really wanted to go, what the fuck? You don't believe what I'm saying? You don't believe, you know? And, but I, I trusted that individual. So I was like, let me see where this is going. And the reality is that, you know, we're in the holidays right now. And a lot of veterans, a lot of public safety people have, have stuff. It seems that around the holidays, when you should be spending time with your family and your loved ones and enjoying the festivities, if you're on duty and you witness something horrific or as a child, you know, that's typically when families get together and a lot of families have predators, sexual trauma, molestation, that kind of thing. That, those things can be subconsciously connected to the holidays without you even realizing it. And when that connection is made, it's like, oh, well, now I get it. That leads me to the question of, have you ever experienced that kind of response from one of your patients where they're like looking at you like, why are you asking me so many goddamn questions? <laughs> um, I'm sure I have when you mention it, but it's not something I've picked up on, which is kind of a lesson for me right now, I think, to make sure I'm looking out for that and make sure I'm explaining like, hey, we're going to talk about a lot of these things because, you know, explaining why I'm doing that. And I think this is, goes back to the beginning when you talked about re-traumatization. I think that's probably where exposure and other, even other trauma treatments can get a that rap. Um, I think you have to be very careful and very respectful when you are working with these therapies, using these therapies, working with people who have been through stuff because they do have to feel like they're, they do have to be in control of the session, not feel like it, they have to be in control. If someone wants to stop the session, we'll stop the session, but people keep going, I think because they trust that it is helpful. So. I think if you're going to do exposure therapy, you have to make sure you have a strong relationship with someone and you have to make it very clear that they're in the driver's seat. And here's the theory behind this. Here's why we want to do this. Here's why I believe in it and how it works. But if it's not working for you, we'll do something different. And I think it's really easy to sit there and think, well, I'm the expert and I was in school for how long and I studied with so and so and i've read the research so i know what's best and when you get too much of that i know what's best when you start asking someone a million questions without explaining why that is i think where you run the risk of re-traumatizing someone so i just really think it takes the right person and the right attitude to be able to do this kind of work yeah absolutely well i mean i don't know if you remember 
when we first met, I was, I was in a really bad place and I had tried to go see other therapists that were out of their league. They really had no business talking to me or any other first responder. And that is unfortunate because I know people that are struggling with PTSD and they won't go get help because of their early experiences with those kinds of therapists. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I like having guests like you on the podcast, just to highlight that there are some amazing therapists out there, some incredible research, well-funded research, um, different modalities, because one modality might work best with this person and another with that person, and this person would benefit from the combination. And it's just so many different things. And you have to have a therapist that has that awareness mm-hmm. and that experience like for you having so much experience with veterans and first responders like all throughout your education uh, I, I think that has served you well and will continue to serve you well and your patients moving forward thank you I hope so. I'm sure we'll touch on a couple more things, but while I'm thinking of it, you're, you're based in New Orleans, Louisiana. And would you say that you treat more veterans and first responders than other clients? Or is that really kind of the focus that you're hoping to get to with where you're working? That's definitely the focus that I would like to get to. Um, I very recently started this job. We moved like a couple of weeks before Hurricane Ida hit. So, you know, it was a while. We went right back to Texas for a week, said hi to all our friends again, said, hey, we're back. We hope our house doesn't wash away. <laughs> we're very fortunate and our roof was intact and all our stuff was still there when we got back. Um, but anyway, it just took me a while to kind of get going on the licensure stuff. So I am a new hire um, here and I would love to build more clientele that are military and first responders um, because I think that's just kind of where my heart is right now. It's some of my favorite work that I've ever done and I would love to be able to stick to that going forward. And I think there's a huge need because of what you've said, because there are so many therapists out there who don't treat people with the respect that they deserve or don't know that evidence-based trauma work. We just, we need more of it everywhere. And especially in New Orleans where there's not a robust mental health scene to say the least. I, I picked up on something that you just said. You made a comment about your passion for serving this community of veterans and first responders. And I feel like the only way that you could possibly have that passion and and that optimism 
is because of the successes you've seen with the modalities that you've been using. And so that to me is, is huge. So people listening that are in the New Orleans area, like how would they reach out and, and enlist your, your help? Yeah, um, I sent you my Psychology Today profile, which has contact information. Um, people can also call and email either one. I mean, whatever works for folks. I'll list it in the show notes. And just so everybody's aware that, um, you know, on whatever link they follow, whatever platform they're listening to this podcast on, your contact information will be in those show notes. So if uh, they are in need of your services or they know somebody that could benefit from them, it'll be easy enough for them to get in touch with you. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what I'm going to do is I will also put that information along with this episode once it's published on my resources page so that people that are um, that find themselves going through all of that information, they'll see all these resources and that it's not just centered or based in central Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I interviewed mental health professionals from, from a lot of different areas of the country. So um, and, and there are more to come. So uh, very cool. We've touched on PTSD, the ACEs study, sexual trauma, um, military sexual trauma, and the different types of treatment that can be utilized to, to help overcome the symptoms of those promise. And with that in mind, is there anything that you can think of that is important for the listeners to know, or maybe something that you'd like to to leave the listeners with? I think trauma treatment has to be your, your trauma recovery is your trauma recovery and it's nobody else's and it's not going to look like anybody else's. So we do have all these research studies that say exposure works really well and CPT works really well and EMDR works really well and whatever, but that doesn't mean that it is the thing that any individual has to do or the only thing that's going to help or, um, the be all end all for anybody. I mean, I, my own therapy was extraordinary, extraordinarily helpful for me, but so was talking to friends. So was journaling. So was running, man. I ran so much back in college just to help deal with emotions and all that was part of it, you know? So I've told people before, and I, I stand strongly by this, that if you go see a therapist and you like them and you get a whole lot better, that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that's going to help you. Or if you go to someone and it's not helping like, Oh, this, this treatment's supposed to be really amazing. And I'm not getting any better. What's wrong with me. Nothing is wrong with you. It just means do something different. 
If it's not working, try something different because there are always ways to get where you wanna be, but it's just not always clear which ones to choose. So I encourage people to try anything and everything healthy um, that might help. Emily, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to interview you and, and for all of your insights and, and the great information. I, I, I know that this episode here, I am confident is going to help quite a few people. And, and I hope that it is able to reach quite a few people in, in your city and uh, wish you all the success in the world because I know you're capable of helping so many. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on here. It was a great opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.